morning and happy Easter. Um, would you please stand with us in reverence of the scriptures? Um, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Annie. Well, there is, um, I'm convinced, there is power in a good cliffhanger. And I think that's why, like, in the age of streaming television and so forth, you can't basically have an episode of TV without some sort of aggressive cliffhanger that's meant to get you to come back, you know, 30 seconds later. Netflix will autoplay it for you if you want. All you have to do is just wait, and you get, you get the resolution. But then, there's another cliffhanger, and another one, and another one. They're not always good, though. Um, sometimes you get a cliffhanger in a book, or a series, or a movie, or whatever, and the worst ones read like the writers either weren't allowed to finish, which is sometimes the case, you know? You finish a season of TV or a movie, and you're like, this is part one of seven. And the studio's like, no, 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 this is part one of one. And <laughs> the ending is just wholly unsatisfying. They didn't actually get a chance to finish the thing. Or, in other cases, they did finish the thing, they just didn't know how to properly end their story. And a cliffhanger can become this sort of catch-all, like, kind of cool, right? <laughs> Interesting. Bad cliffhangers create distance between the work and the reader or the viewer or whatever, but the best ones serve as an invitation to revisit the work, to explore it, to unpack it. They leave you with work to do that will, further reward, that will reward further exploration or unlock further depth. Sometimes good cliffhangers will actually motivate you to go do something. Um, one of the best cliffhangers I can think of that does this and I'm so sorry if I spoil this for you. It's just, it's been a long time. And it's a popular movie. Inception? Inception. Uh, Christopher Nolan film from, I don't know, how old is that movie now? 10 years old? Something like that? Uh, that's weird if that's a 10-year-old movie. Um, but Inception, if you don't know, it's a movie about these guys who have this technology to basically induce dreams and then to go inside the dreams and plant ideas that will then, you know, blossom into real-world consequences. And at the end of the film, here it is, cover your ears if you don't want to hear it. At the end of the film, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character spins this top that is supposed to be like the way he can tell if he's in a dream or not. And the, the, the lingering shot is that it just continues to spin and spin and spin. And the camera is kind of panning in on the spinning top. And you're just like, is, is it still a dream or is he out of the dream? And perhaps, now we need to go back and see, perhaps it starts to wobble. Like, perhaps it starts to wobble right before the cut to black, directed by Christopher Nolan, and uh, it's a great film. 
The spinning top, I, the reason it's a useful cliffhanger and not just like, oh, he didn't tell us what happened is that it's, it invites you to go back into the story and to, to look for the clues. How many times did he go into a dream? When do we see him come out of the dream? Is there any point where we see him go in but we don't see him come out? You're supposed to go back and investigate. And see, has the movie left us with the definitive answer of which world is this man in, the real world or the dream world? It encourages you to go and do something with the information that it leaves you with. You might be wondering, what does that have to do with the gospel according to Mark? The answer is nothing. I just like movies a lot. Um, no. No, we've come, we've come to the end of the gospel according to Mark. If, if this is your first time visiting us, we have been journeying through this book uh, for over two years. We started this book... Uh, I believe in February of 2021. And we haven't been in it straight through. We've taken breaks, but the total is, this is the 66th sermon. 66 Sundays together as a community. We've been listening to the word read over us. We've been studying it together, in many cases, breaking out and discussing it in our small groups and so on and so forth. And we've come to the end. What, what Annie just read for us is the last section of the gospel according to Mark. Um, we started this long journey through Mark, not just because we're gluttons for punishment or because I want to bore you or whatever else, but because before our church turned one year old, we wanted to make sure that the very foundation of our communal life together was rooted around the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And some will debate this, but I contend if you want to get the gospel, you should go to the gospels, the gospels like the gospel according to Mark. Um, so if you just, by way of recap, the opening verse of this book of Mark describes itself as, quote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this tells us that, that this early disciple of Jesus, Mark, um, he wrote to convince his readers, and now 2,000 years later, guess what? We're his readers, somehow, somehow. In the course of history, we have this ancient book printed everywhere, and we are reading it, and so he wants to convince us as well. First, that this humble carpenter named Jesus from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, uh, in the nation of Israel, who lived and taught in the first third of the first century, that this same one was somehow three things. It's all in that first sentence. First, he was the Christ, the long-awaited, God-anointed king who would rescue Israel from their misfortune and oppressions and perhaps put right much more than that. Second, that he was the son of God, one who uniquely shares in the nature of God, who is God himself transposed into human flesh. And third, that he is the deliverer of good news. The word gospel simply means good news. The word came to capture the essence of the central message of Jesus that he had done something to enable the coming of the kingdom of God with all of its blessings of perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect goodness, perfect truth, perfect righteousness into this broken world. And that this kingdom is inaugurated now and it's here in part, but it's secure that it's going to come in full one day when he returns. That's why Christians still wait for the return, a second coming of Jesus. And that he has done everything necessary 
to deal with the sins and evils and shortcomings and injustices of the people that he loves so that he can welcome them into a seat in this kingdom, into this people, into this family, to use other language that the scriptures declare. He brought forgiveness. He brought reconciliation. He brought grace to any who would receive them. That's what Mark wants to convince you of and me. So over the past couple of months, we've been studying the stories of Jesus' sufferings, uh, the last section here in the, in the Gospel of Mark, um, and it culminated in his death on a Roman torture device we know as the cross. And then last week, we looked at his burial, his genuine burial in the tomb. And now we come to the very end of the book, which is perhaps, unsurprisingly, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, it's the story of his resurrection. Surprise. But friends, it's a weird story. I don't know if you caught that when when Annie read it for us. Um, This is a weird one. Um, Mark stands alone as the only one of the four gospel writers, the four canonical gospel writers, who does not include a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Did you catch that? We just skirted through, where's Jesus? Told us he's raised, but it doesn't show him to the characters. Resurrection is mentioned, yes, it's validated, but it's not experienced by the characters in this story. It ends not with a note of triumph or celebration, but what's the last phrase? Fear. What? What? Verse 8 literally ends with the phrase, for they were afraid. In the original Greek, it's even weirder grammatically. The last word is the, is the conjunction for. For. We're afraid. They were afraid for. Okay, the question is why? Why leave this story here? Why leave the Gospel of Mark? Why, why would Mark, who undoubtedly would call this story he's, he's reporting on, the Gospel, the most important event in all of human history that hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, if, we're, if we should even give it the time of day, why does he just leave it dangling here? Why a cliffhanger? We'll find out. So before we get there, we, need to, we have to take it in turn for, for that final point, for the answer to that question to emerge. And we, we need to see a couple of things. First, we need to see in Mark 16 a radical honesty in this account that Mark's putting forward. So it says, when the Sabbath was passed, these three women, Mary and Mary and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Jesus' body was laid in the tomb and it was decomposing. And a whole day, that, remember he was killed on Friday, and so he was buried just at the tail end of Friday before the Sabbath hit, where it would be illegal to do such things. They had to wait the whole Sabbath, Saturday, then early in the morning, just as, it, just as it's, they're able to go to the tomb in the light of day, on Sunday, they've got a dead body who's been in a cave for 24 plus hours. And they just want to dignify it. These women just, they, they loved Jesus. And probably now they're not assuming anything uh, is going to happen other than they just have to go and deal with his body. They want to dignify it. They want to honor it by treating it with oils and spices that will actually help the smell uh, from emanating out too far into the community. So it's a tragic, a tragic moment here. But it's these women, it's these women that we see who are the first to receive the good news. They're the first hearers of the gospel, at least this piece of it. They were the first ones to get the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the first ones commissioned to go tell other people about it. 
And what I mean by the honesty of Mark's account is that this fact reveals deep evidence that this really happened. That this isn't just, you know, a nice story or a legend or, you know, metaphor for, you know, just spiritual things that have happened in people's hearts, but that it actually happened. Why do I say that? Well, notice who, isn't, who is and who isn't here in this story. Who is here? Um, women. Women as the key witnesses. Now, you've probably heard this before if you've studied this at any length, but tragically, in the first century, in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, the testimonies of women were not valued. They were not valued. In fact, in some cases, they were not admissible evidence in court. Which, just let that hit you for It's horrific. It's horrible. It's horrible. So if this story were a fabrication, if this were a conspiracy, which is probably the biggest alternative to actually believing the resurrection is that Christians formed a scheme to concoct this lie to get out into the world, and that's how Christianity started. If this were a fabrication, this fact that the first witnesses and the ones who brought the news to the rest were women would have done nothing but hinder the average person's ability to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The only reason to present the story this way, which all four gospel writers do, is that their conviction to tell the truth outweighs their desire to present it as favorably as possible. To say nothing of the fact that in, in God's superintending of history, these are the people that he chooses to be the dignified first witnesses. Just let that hit you for a second in that culture. But there's no reason to tell the story this way if you're trying to make your religious movement look good. This is counterproductive. Second, notice who's not there. The 12 key disciples had all burned out at this point. They had all burned out. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Peter had publicly denied his relationship with Jesus three times, and the rest, at least at some point, fled from him. At this point, we're told, I believe it's in John, that they're hiding out in a room with locked doors, afraid of what the Jews will do to them for their association with Jesus. So they are hiding, afraid to get too close to Jesus, even after his death. Once again, if this story were a fabrication, you know, presumably concocted by the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples now, uh, who are the key leaders of this religious movement. If this were a fabrication, um, painting the people who would go on to be the definitive spokespeople for this movement as hapless, unfaithful cowards would have made no sense. The only reason to present it this way is if your conviction to tell the truth outweighs your desire to present it as favorably as possible. The only reason. If we were fabricating this thing, Peter would you know, maybe show up with a sword and a shield and he's fighting off Roman soldiers and, and the Jewish religious leaders and he's courageously, you know, that's how it would go. That's not what happened. Mark tells the truth. And maybe one other thing I would note on this is just the unique nature of the way that these central teachings of Christianity, these ideas of Christianity are uniquely falsifiable. What do I mean by that? Well, nearly every other religious movement is evaluated on, the, on its teachings, right? So, you know, Muhammad in the Quran wrote such and such, and you can take it, evaluate it as is. Uh, same for Buddha, same, you name it. The idea is almost always that there's a religious leader or teacher of some sort, and if they claim that their teaching was inspired by God or gods or whatever, spiritual force beyond themselves, it almost always goes like this. 
They retreated into a cave somewhere. They were in a forest. They were somewhere in isolation, suffering in a desert. They were by themselves. They were by themselves. That's the point. And they come out. They emerge with this new teaching from God. And they say, hey, God gave me this. And it's left to all of us to say, okay, let's evaluate it. Does that have the ring of truthfulness? Does that have the ring of divinity? Christianity doesn't work that way. Christianity pushes all of its chips in on this thing called the public appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. Christianity says, well, it's the only one that I know that has made itself falsifiable in this way. It hinges on the resurrection and public appearances of Jesus. Eyewitnesses were named. Which Mary? The mother of James. In the previous stories, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, here's the names of his children. Richard Bauckham, a great scholar, he, he writes convincingly that what the gospel writers are doing is they're footnoting their story. They are listing the names, addresses, and relatives of the people who saw the risen Jesus to say, you don't believe me? Go ask them. Go ask them. Because we're not playing a game here. We're claiming something really has happened. There is news to tell, and any responsible reader should go investigate for themselves. I don't know of any other religion that's, that hinges on that. Christianity does. It can be proven or it can be disproven. It, certainly it could at the time. Maybe it's a little harder now, 2023. But they said yes. Did Jesus die, raise, and then appear to hundreds of witnesses? They said yes. They left receipts and they staked everything on it. We're willing to die for that fact. Okay. It's the truthfulness of Mark's account. But secondly, we want to see what it's claiming. What happened? What it's claiming is that there was a bodily resurrection. So looking up, verse 4, they, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man. The other gospels make it clear this was an angel. His appearance, there was something different and unique about his appearance. He was sitting on the right side. He's dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You can imagine, like, who is messing with the tomb of Jesus? And who's this guy just sitting in here, hanging out? And why does he look so weird? They were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He tries to comfort them. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Here's the key, key phrase. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But what, what this gospel and the others want to convince you is that this, again, this is not some spiritual metaphor. It wasn't as though the body of Jesus was lying in the grave. And they're going, his spirit is all around us now. He's, yeah, he, he's, he's alive in your heart. He's alive some, you know, he's alive somewhere. No, no, no. The body's gone. Look, it's, it's, it, the tomb is empty. His body has been repurposed. It's been taken up again. It's been transformed. It's been resurrected. We could talk a lot about the differences between this resurrection body and the bodies that you and I have. That's worth talking about. We just don't have time this morning. The point is, his body was gone. His body, his physical body was raised. And what this means, what this means is there is hope for the body. The God of the universe dignifies the human body. He's the creator of it. He declared it good. He declares it good. You are an embodied person, a spirit and material unity. And what the resurrection says is that that will always be the case. When we die, 
New Testament teaches, the scriptures teach, there will be a severance from our bodies. But the resurrection hope we wait for is that when Jesus comes back, we will be embodied once again. So the hope that we have is for real, physical, embodied existence. And that means there's hope for our bodies and there's hope for the world, a real world, a genuine world. Sometimes we get stressed out about the idea of eternity with God in heaven because we're like, I don't know, angel babies floating on clouds or ethereal spirit things or it's like the most boring, endless worship service. You know, there's the one where you're, like, you're stuck in like a pew and it's uncomfortable and you're singing songs and you're told, be happy, this is fun. Yeah, I think I'm supposed to anticipate this, but that's really hard to do. And I'm not denigrating worshiping God together in song. Of course, we will be doing that in heaven. Uh, But the point, the point of resurrection hope is that it's real life. What was life like before the fall? It was real bodies, working a garden, cultivating the earth, having families, like enjoying relationship with one another, having jobs to do. The picture that we get at the end of the Bible in the later chapters of Revelation is once again, the garden is back, the tree of life is back, the river of life is back, but now it's a city. Human culture continues to grow and develop. There are things for us to do, a world for us to cultivate. Perhaps, I nerd out about this, this is all speculative, perhaps a universe to explore, undaunted by sin and the specter of death. What planets is Jesus going to commission us to go? I I don't know. Anyway, we're getting way off track here. Um... (laughs) The point is it's real life. All the good things that you love and enjoy because they flow from a good God who created them and gives them and wants you to find joy in them through him, they will be there for you. Sharing meals together, like, (laughs) it's good, friends. Resurrection hope is real, embodied hope, and it's hope for a new life. Not something other than life, life life. I think this is what we all want. This is what we all hope for. This is what the the horror of death represents is the loss of all these things. Jesus took them back up again and he offers that to his people as well. There's a third thing here to not miss and that's the incredible grace in the resurrection which, which is speaks to why it happened. Like, why? why? Why was he raised? Why was he raised? Look at verse 7. The angel says, but go. He commands the women, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So what does this have to do with grace? Well, notice this. Again, the disciples at this moment in the story We already said it. They failed. They abandoned Jesus. Peter, worst of all. Well, I guess Judas, worst of all, but Peter, second worst. They have failed. Jesus told Peter, you were going to deny me three times, and Peter corrected Jesus. He said, no, I'm not. I will not. I will go to death before I deny you. And then he denied him. So you could imagine... When the, when the women do eventually tell the story and the men, these disciples do go and find Jesus, you could imagine Peter, of, of them all, being like, I'm not going. I know how kings work. I know how gods work. I know how people I've betrayed work. I'm not going. And what this angel declares, we assume, speaking on behalf of God here, 
tell the disciples to come back. Even tell Peter. Tell Peter specifically. And it's just done in passing here, but this, this speaks to the fact that the resurrection is not about Jesus rising to condemn us in our sins, but to forgive us our sins. He did not raise to wag a finger at Peter and say, well, you really botched it, buddy. Now depart from me. He raised and says, come to me. I forgive you. I have grace for you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I will restore you into leadership. Peter goes on to be the key central leader of of the early Christian movement. There is forgiveness. There is grace. And we just catch this little window of it right here in verse 7. But it speaks to the larger issue that, you know, as we've been talking about the cross, what it declares is that the, the consequence of our sin of our rebellion against of God, of participating in injustice, of doing evil, perpetrating evil against ourselves, against our neighbors, against our God. The consequence, the right consequence is death. Because he's good, he has to care about evil inflicted on, out and into the world. And he does. But the resurrection was not, see, I'm so good and now I'm going to deal with you the proper way. It was, I dealt with it, the, the cross, my death was the way I dealt with it. That was me clearing every barrier. That was me dealing with sin once and for all. So as I raise to new life, I come bearing the good news that everything you need to be reconciled to God and to neighbor and to yourself has been accomplished. So come receive it. Come receive it. It's free. He came not to condemn us in our sins, which is sometimes how we get twisted up and spin this whole story but it's just the opposite. He came to offer forgiveness. He came to offer grace. He came to call you close to love you. There's another thing. There's another thing here, which is the existential fear that this produces. Okay, wait a second. I thought we were just talking about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. We were, but notice the women's reaction. Verse eight. They went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. These three didn't react with joyous celebration but with fear and trembling. Why? They just got the news that this Jesus that they had been following, that they loved, that they were mourning, that they were trying to dignify his dead body, that he's alive, he's raised. You're gonna see him again. And their response is fear and trembling. What? What is that? Well, I just, if we could put ourselves into their, into their shoes for a second, I, I think it quickly becomes understandable if we do a little imagination here. Think about this. Everything that they knew about the world had just been upended with that sentence. Joy and celebration were going to come, I'm certain of it, quite quickly. But Mark wants to leave his readers, you and me, in this very familiar moment, I think, if we, if we can think about it, of category-breaking awe. Have you ever had something happen in your life that just disrupted all of your assumptions and the way in which you understand the world or your life or a relationship to work? And you just have to kind of, even if it's not bad news, you just kind of have to catch your bearings. It's terrifying. 
to have foundational bedrock ideas stripped from you, even if it's for something better. These women were discovering that we really do live in a world, it turns out, in which the material exists alongside the spiritual and the supernatural. We really do live in a world in which God is real and he's actually concerned with human evil. We live in a world where death is not necessarily the final end for humanity, though it has always seemed that way, because every person has died and we've never seen anything else. That we really do live in a world in which love and forgiveness and truth and justice and beauty and goodness have, can and will triumph over sin and evil, though the evidence in our world does not look that way. We really do live in a world in which all that Jesus had said was truer than they could imagine. But it had been instituted in these ways they never could have predicted through his abandonment and his suffering and his rejection and his beating and his torture and his crucifixion and his death and his burial. That's the kind of world we live in. And every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, has, has, has had to come to that point where you've had all of the things you thought about how the world worked, what God was like, your standing, your place in things had to be stripped from you and replaced with something deeper and more beautiful and more true. It's destabilizing. There can be a fear there. And I would just say, the people of ancient Israel or the Roman Empire, the people that we read about in these stories, they were not dumb and they were not gullible, as we might assume. The death and resurrection of Jesus challenged everyone's worldview in different ways. And Paul says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 22, for Jews demand signs, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews had their reasons why the belief in the Messiah would be this guy who was this humble carpenter and taught the things that he did and ultimately died a curse up on a tree, a specifically Jewish curse up on a tree, that this man was the Messiah? That this, that the crucifixion was the vehicle by which God was reconciling humanity to himself by him suffering in the place? They had their reasons why this would be impossible to believe. Same for the Greeks, same for the Romans. For them, it's just silliness. This is just folly, this is foolishness, this is idiocy. Who in their right mind could believe something like this? Those challenges come to all of us. They have come to all of us at one point or another. Belief, I was just saying, belief in the resurrection comes naturally to no one. Certainly not to the preacher up here. It's difficult to believe this. It's traumatic to your worldview. It destroys your conception of everything. I've come to believe for the better and for the truer. But that process is painful. That's the process these women were going through in this moment. Okay, so we come to the end. 
And we're left, we, we wrestle with the fact that the book ends on a provoking cliffhanger, which is pointing to the question of what now that this happened. So just a brief moment of, of text criticism. I know you would all love for me to go on for hours about this, but uh, we'll, just, we'll just be brief. Um, if you look at your Bible, if you have an app or a paper Bible, um, you're going to see there's like, how many more? 12 more verses? And probably, actually, if it doesn't have this, you should maybe consider getting a different Bible, uh, legitimately. Um, but if you look at your Bible, you'll notice that there's more verses, and they have probably been bracketed. And there's probably a marginal note or a footnote or a, a title, a little introduction to this that says something to the effect of, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. The earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Um, so the earliest New Testament manuscripts show Mark ended right here where we read, which is what we're preaching. Because I'm convinced this is the real, genuine, original ending of Mark. Um, some point later, there was this, actually a couple of different longer endings that were written and added to the manuscripts. And you might start freaking out, like, whoa, 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 what does this mean about the truthfulness of the Bible? It means we can have a lot of confidence in our text-critical tools to say, we know what the original ending was. We can see in the manuscript history when it got changed. And now we can just put a bracket on it and say, hey, this isn't original. Don't, take, don't treat this as scripture. So we aren't. Uh, actually, on, on a side note, I'm going to do a podcast this week to, as like an addendum to the Gospel of Mark that will kind of get into this and be like, hey, let's talk about the long ending and, you know, what can, we, what can we learn from it? But for now, this is where the book ends. Most scholars agree. Um, so the question is, why? Why are these, these longer endings? And some suggest that the longest ending, the one that's like 12 verses, is the genuine ending because this short ending is just so unsatisfying. Like, look at it. For they were afraid. What? What kind of ending is that to your good news, Mark? What are you talking about? These scholars would suggest that this cliffhanger ending is just impossible for the type of work that Mark is writing. But, listen to these quotes. I find this so compelling. Commentator David Garland writes, the incomplete ending, therefore, seemingly incomplete, has Christ still waiting symbolically in Galilee for his followers to come. And it forces us to ask whether we will go meet him there as well. Garland also says this, the variants, in my opinion, are examples of a less skilled hand trying to fix what the master had not made explicit or had made too explicit like the later artists who tried to fix Michelangelo's masterpiece in the Sistine Chapel by painting clothes on the naked figures. I think he's right. The longer ending, they, they kind of tie it into what's happening in the rest of the New Testament, bring it more in accord with the other gospels, but it's like trampling over the provocative work of a great artist. It's pain, why don't we get some clothes on Adam, at least a tasteful loincloth on the Sistine Chapel? Wouldn't that be better? No. No, no, no. Or commentator Morna Hooker, she writes this, answering the question, what's up with this ending? She says, is, this, is it perhaps because Mark is inviting us to make our own response? Is it because this was the starting point for Mark's own readers, writing much later to a Roman audience who would never have the chance 
to see the resurrected Jesus because he's already ascended to the Father. He's coming back one day, but, it, but when his readers were reading this, they're just hearing the stories decades ago. Jesus raised from the dead, and yes, he appeared to these people, and you can go ask him, go and do your homework, but you're not going to get to see him. Not yet. Is it because this was the starting point for Mark's own readers? She goes on, they could not go and inspect the tomb for themselves. They had to rely on the evidence of others that it was indeed empty. As for seeing the risen Lord, that was a possibility for them all. Not indeed in the special way reported by the other evangelists and by Paul in the so-called resurrection appearances, but by accepting the invitation of the Lord to, quote, go to Galilee, the place of discipleship. The promise is intended for them and for us as well as for the 11 frightened disciples. If you want to see Jesus, then follow where he leads. This is the end of Mark's story because it's the beginning of discipleship. This ending, for they were afraid, forces us to ask if we will go find him. Will we go find him? Will we go tell of him? Or will we hide away in fear or in disinterest or in disbelief or in something else? So if these scholars are right, I suggest that they are. The ending of Mark brings us back to Mark's claims that started the book. He said, remember, the, remember what he said? The first phrase, this is the beginning of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the, what's the continuation? This ellipsis right here. We complete the story. We pick it up. We get challenged by it. And it also pushes us back to the center point of Mark that we talked about. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. As they're, as they're walking towards the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus poses the question to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Point of Mark, point of this provocative, weird ending, is who do you say that he is? Was he a great human ethicist, an insightful human teacher, an important prophet who was crucially not the Son of God, another would-be Jewish Messiah among many who died like the rest, a fashion accessory to be worn, a political symbol to baptize with your party's agenda, a cosmic cheerleader who's just always in favor of whatever you choose to do, a divine Santa Claus, a deluded lunatic. If he was wrong about these claims, you can't say anything else. And a deluded lunatic. A danger, or a dangerous teacher of backwards, regressive, oppressive evils. Like the Pharisees accused him, was he just a glutton and a drunk? Was he a liar and a fraud? Or as they also accused him, was he a demon or empowered by demons? Was he the ultimate blasphemer claiming to be divine when he was not? Or is he, like Mark has been arguing for 16 chapters for two years in Door of Hope Northeast time, was he the one the prophet spoke of? 
Was he a friend to the poor and the sick and the marginalized and the needy? Was he the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many? Was he the true and better law-giving Moses, the true and better ruling David, the one with ultimate power over Satan, the one with power over nature itself, calming the wind and the seas? Was he the one who can raise the dead, the one who will freely trade places with the guilty sinner? the good shepherd, the source of life, the long-promised Christ or Messiah, the Son of God, the gracious, forgiving, loving Savior of any and all who would come to him. Who do you say that he is? This whole ancient book has, has existed to bring us to that question and this ending, this cliffhanger, urges us to go back and consider all that we've learned about this man and to make a decision. To make a decision. Claims the, the keys to life, life abundant, life everlasting, are with this man, this God-man. So, if I could speak on behalf of Mark, I invite you to come to Jesus today. If you've been walking with him for a long time, this is a moment a moment to, to re-examine him afresh. And if your heart's turned a little bit cold and a little bit distant and a little bit unimpressed, to get reignited. To re-declare, this is who he is. And I will follow. I will go to Galilee. I will speak of him. I will speak close to him. I'll allow his spirit to fill me, to embolden me. And if you've never come to Jesus, this book serves as an invitation to say, just come. Paul says, if anyone believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. And there's more to think about, and there's more to work out, and there's a long road of discipleship that we all walk down. We're not discounting that. But you start there. Who do you say that he is? Is he Lord? Is there a better way to explain Christianity outlasting the Roman Empire when it started here? It started like this. Is there anywhere else to go for a hope of life over death that's not just a pipe dream, but that's falsifiable, that so many saw this man when they had nothing to gain from following him, in fact, had already decided not to? Until they saw him. They saw him. They saw him. They saw him. And we will see him again. We will see him again. When you're in Christ, your death is not the end of the story either. But this resurrection hope the New Testament goes on to develop is for all of his people. As he took up his life again, he will take up yours again and give it back to you. Unstained by sin and sickness and death, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Everything we lost in Genesis 3 restored, and even greater, even better. If you've never followed, trusted Jesus, I invite you to do that today. If you do, please tell someone. Come tell me. Let's pray.